Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined once again by Dr. Charity Dean, CEO, co-founder, and chairman of The Public Health Company. Prior to founding The Public Health Company, Dr. Dean served as the Assistant Director for the California Department of Public Health and was a key member of the executive team directing the COVID-19 outbreak response. She is also prominently featured in Michael Lewis's recent book, The Premonition. Speaking of Mr. Lewis, Michael is my other guest on the show today. Michael is a New York Times bestselling author who has written a wide array of books on various subjects. Recent books include The Big Short, Flash Boys, The Undoing Project, The Fifth Risk, and the aforementioned The Premonition. Of course, we should not forget the one that started them all, Liar's Poker. Michael is also a columnist for Bloomberg View and a contributing writer for Audible. His articles have appeared in Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Slate, Sports Illustrated, Foreign Affairs, and many other outlets. Michael, Charity, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Pleasure to be with you. So I want to talk about a couple of things, but I want to start with how you two met as we're now approaching, you know, at least from my perspective, the two-year anniversary from what I consider sort of the lockdown, right? When Americans writ large realized something very bad was upon us. And so things completely shut down. Now we're hearing not the word pandemic, but endemic thrown around. Mass mandates across localities are being drastically cut back. Schools are starting to reduce these things. So, Michael, let's start with you. How do you see the state of the pandemic, not medically, but as it looks based on the reporting you did for your book and now where we are, you know, a year later? Well, just as if you'd have told me before the pandemic that, you know, a million Americans would die. And if you told me that we would still be divided, that we would not have got ourselves together, I wouldn't have believed you. If you'd have told me when I started work on the book that would be this far into it, with such a range of views about what happened, what worked, what didn't work, what were the effects, that we wouldn't have some sort of consensus at this point, I wouldn't have believed you. It's amazing how muddy public understanding is of the event to me. It's really interesting and damning. What led me to charity in the first place, there were a series of steps. But the first was we had more resources to respond to this threat than any society. And we were sitting there six months in with this very damning statistic that we had just a bit more than 4% of the world's population and we had more than 20% of the deaths. And that had been incredibly consistent all the way to when the vaccines were distributed. Like, why were we so bad? 
it was so like a college football team. It's ranked at you know top of the polls uh, in the preseason. May, may I just interrupt to say that the example that you use in your book, one University of Texas at Austin, happens to be my alma mater. And <laughs> I was taken aback, not because I was so insulted, but because it was just so real. You've lived it. You're sitting in the middle of the greatest pool of football talent in the country. You've got first dibs on that talent. Like, why aren't you winning every year? There's some basic problem, right, that needs to be addressed. A similar sort of question could be asked about the United States government and the people in this event. So that was the beginning of the question. It led me eventually to her. The other thing that was going on, before the pandemic happened, I had it in my mind when I looked back over the books I'd written, that the ones I liked the most were the ones where I was fully enthralled by the characters, where I had effectively a literary character in real life. So I was going to write a book, and I had the character, and then this happens. So I was primed to go looking for great characters, and she landed in my lap is too strong a word, because it was actually a pain in the ass to get a hold of her, because the California state government did not want me talking to her. But all these roads led to her, and she opened up this world to me. She says, you think we have a public health system, but we actually don't. You have people like me out here, more or less on our own, with an institution that's supposed to be providing a lot of cover for us at the federal level, the CDC that's actually just covering its ass all the time. And Charity, that was one thing you know that you noted was how many different health systems do we have, usually by county across the country? Yeah, well, we have around 3,200 local health departments. And so that essentially is the U.S. public health system because all of them serve at the will of an elected politician. And so the CDC is not actually part of that operational chain of command, nor part of the local authority a local health officer has. I mean, just to use my you know, line of work, it's the same thing with elections, right? The Federal Elections Commission has literally nothing to do with elections other than campaign finance. Just like you as a local health officer, there's a county clerk, an elections judge, a secretary of state or a lieutenant governor, whoever it is. And to your point, they're pretty much on their own and they've got to rely on elected officials who have their own issues, you know, their own constituencies to deal with. And when push comes to shove, now what we see here, the people that work in those places, Charity, I think, are very dedicated public servants, very much sometimes, though, as we see now increasingly, a polarized country in which even the things that are supposed to be standard are now, as in the latest James Bond movies, right, you're kites in a hurricane just being blown around trying to find your footing. So my first time my jaw was on the floor when I started reporting the book, I was with Charity wandering around Santa Barbara where she'd been a local health officer, hearing the stories. Now, she was particularly obsessed with communicable disease, so her stories were often about, like, tuberculosis. But the sheer drama of it was incredible. The stakes were high. It was life and death. People were upset. She was put in all sorts of uncomfortable situations. If you'd asked me before I started the book what a local health officer did, I would thought they inspect the restaurants, make sure they don't get food poisoning. But there was disease drama going on in the background all the time. I mean, we went to our old offices. Their old offices look like they're out of the 19th century. The high tech there is the fax machine. It's creepily archaic, yet the people in it are fabulous. And there's a reason they're fabulous. And like, there's a reason why she's attracted to the job. It's very clearly important. It attracts mission-driven people. And that was interesting to me. But Charity, let me ask you that. Let's use tuberculosis, you know, as Michael mentioned, as an example. 
I assume that every time you were a local health officer that you had to quarantine an individual or a family because of TB, nobody went to a local school board and said, how dare you quarantine these people for tuberculosis, right? And that's the right thing to do. It's still the right thing to do. My guess is if somebody said, yeah, they have TB, they should be stuck in their house for the next 28 days or whatever it is, no one would argue with you. That's right. And that was a normal part of my job was putting people in the least restrictive means necessary. So using the least restrictive means with a disease like tuberculosis absolutely meant health officer ordered mandatory home isolation for a set period of time until I released them from isolation based on a lab result. Sometimes I would get pushback, sometimes from schools or from employers, and I would go in there and explain to them at the whiteboard what would happen if I didn't do this and what my authority was. If you talk to the people at the organizational level of public health, the people who kind of coordinate local public health officers in California, when you ask them what's the job of the local health officer, the first thing they say is to be fired. Eventually, it's going to get ugly. Eventually, some rich, powerful person is going to be forced to quarantine with tuberculosis, and they're not going to like it. And eventually, your rear end is going to be in the sling. And it was interesting that the job required that kind of bravery. I thought, that's not a good sign. It was interesting to me, too, the CDC wasn't there. Or if they were there, they were in a way that obstructed her. The minute it got hot, it became problematic. We had sort of shoved down the battlefield decisions onto a person, this local health officer, who didn't have the social power to actually carry out a big battle. And that the institution that really should have been running the thing, the CDC, learned that they're better off not engaging on the battlefield. That surprised me. Well, it's the difference between, Michael, somebody, to use the experience of a lot of my friends who served in the military, mostly in combat units, the difference between somebody who's got to go take a hill and the staff guy who said, you know how I think you should take the hill. Yeah. But imagine if the staff guy, he's going to write the history of the battle afterwards. And all of his status is going to be how good that history is. It's like getting in the way for his own aims. It's when Francis Ford Coppola makes a cameo in his own movie in Apocalypse Now. And he says, no, no, pretend like you're fighting. Pretend like you're fighting as he runs by with his video camera. <laughs> but you ask me, am I surprised where we are now? One of the many like subcategories of surprise I have is I would have thought the society would have figured out these are the people whose voices we need to hear. If there's going to be a commission to investigate what happened, if we're going to talk about reforming the CDC, if we're going to be on cable news mouthing off about what's going on with the pandemic, that you go right to these experts. They're the ones who've been doing it. You know, I went into this looking for like a great character in an interesting situation, and this was it because it's where the action was. And society has not figured that out yet. Well, it, because most folks don't know who the local health officer are and likely never would and never likely come in contact with them. But that was the problem when Michael came and found me is I was explaining this to him, that the local health officers are the start and the end of frontline response, and that on a day-to-day -day basis, those that write the white papers or academic journals later, those people are totally irrelevant in the heat of battle. And I could tell it was blowing his mind. And so I told him and took him through the role of the local health officer based on a host of stories pre-COVID. You know, my motto had become, no one is coming to save you. And what was interesting through COVID up to where we are now is that reality, no one's coming to save you, is what 
the country has realized. Business owners, those that have to make decisions, policy decisions that they're largely on their own. So the country has learned the lesson in COVID that I, as the local health officer, knew really well. One example that pretty dramatically illustrated the relationship between the local health officer and the CDC was when you were faced with that meningococcal outbreak at UCSB. Oh, this was tough. The story starts with me getting a phone call from Dr. Jose, my mentor, describing the patient that was in the ICU, a young man from UCSB who was a fairly social person involved in multiple different organizations there who had what clinically appeared to be meningococcal meningitis. It's a pretty distinctive rash. It's pretty distinctive symptoms. It spreads really fast and it spread through sex, sharing food, sharing straws, cigarettes. So the cross-pollination in a college setting is fairly high. So when I get that phone call from Dr. Jose, the dilemma was that the lab test result came back negative. And he said to me, I know what I will do as the treating physician here with this patient in front of me, but the stakes for you are much higher than they are for me. Because Dr. Jose knew that I, as the local health officer, would have to decide was I going to treat this as meningitis? And immediately, within minutes, I had to put into place an action plan to contain the outbreak on the college campus. And in order to do that, I was going to have to make a bet on where it was, where it was spreading, what organizations would be notified, because you have a very limited time window to give medicine that will stop the spread in those who are exposed. The first condition, uncertainty going in. You've got to make a call with intense uncertainty. You're going to inconvenience lots of people. You were going to close down the fraternities. You were going to administer a vaccine. Yeah, it's a medication, ciprofloxacin. Approved in Europe, but not approved in the United States. You were going to rent hotel rooms and thin out the dorm rooms. The kind of things that piss everybody off because it's disrupting campus life. And this boy in the hospital, his legs are turning purple and they're about to be amputated. So enter the CDC. Tell us why the CDC is there and what they do. So to fast forward... We all know the term now of social distancing or non-pharmaceutical interventions. That was the first thing I did. Identify who the close contacts were. Treat them with, you know, ciprofloxacin. Identify who their contacts were. Determine the most important question, how far on the campus has this spread? When it was determined, it was very clear that there was a widespread contact base that had already taken place. That triggered a different threat level, meaning at this point, UCSB was incredible. I was working closely with their medical director wanting to do the right thing, looking at bringing in the vaccine that was not yet approved in the United States had been approved in other countries. So essentially, high-stakes situation, potentially thousands of kids exposed, more cases had been identified thanks to sleuth work, and looking at the question of, do we bring in this essentially experimental vaccine to protect thousands of college kids? That's a hard decision to make. You would think that in making that decision amidst uncertainty with thousands of lives at stake with an experimental vaccine, that would be a role where a larger entity like the CDC could come in and really provide air cover. So the CDC engaged with us in those discussions, but it became clear to me a decision was not going to be made that I would have to be the one to make the decision. So when it comes time to be rolling out these interventions, they tell her to slow down and do them one by one. So when it comes time to write the paper, it's got some scientific credibility. As opposed to just stopping the thing from spreading, she was trying to stop people from dying, and they were trying to get a paper. So you flash forward 
Two years later, there's a similar outbreak at like some big college campus. And when they call the CDC, they say, call Charity Dean. She's the expert now. I mean, that's crazy. But Michael, let me ask you something. Through all the books that you've written and all the chronicling of American life through the various things you've done and the various books you've written, have you noticed that there are fewer and fewer people like Charity and the other folks that you profile in Premonition? Are there fewer and fewer of those people? Or is it that the overall environment across whatever it is, government, health, politics, finance, whatever it is, has been where like if something's working and you're the one who says it's not working, you're the bug that's going to get squashed. Has that gotten worse as you've sort of written and sort of explored America over these decades? I mean, there are not a lot of people like Jerry to start with. I think we have incredible talent, like at the individual level. There's a combination of big screwed up systems. That's something I'm just attracted to as a writer. So the closest thing to this book is the big short. In that case, it's a big screwed up financial system. And the people who are diagnosing the system, they're not inside JP Morgan. They're kind of just on the outside. I think what's happened is the person who can explain what's happened in this big system is very often not right at the heart of the big system. They've seen stuff, but they're running it. So several times I've wandered into these similar situations where it's a big hairball of a subject, extremely complicated, hard to figure out what went wrong. And I go looking for the authoritative voice. Who am I persuaded by? And I'm surprised by who that ends up being. And the reason I'm led to her is that she has explained it to other people who have fancier job titles, who I went to first, and they said, she understands how it works. That's one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which is the first time that I interviewed Charity, we were talking about that this was a public health problem, but the broader issue is one that you just discussed, which was we had a significant systems issue. With the big short, it was finance. With the fifth risk, it was government. With this, it was the health system. You know, a lot of the way that the United States and maybe the world has been built up is now almost 80 years old, right? It all came out of the aftermath of World War II, whether or not it's a national security apparatus, how we reorganize the government. You know, first it was the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Then we had HHS and education. And so these bureaucracies have grown up and they've all sort of taken on their own power centers and their own structures. But the more that you poke that system or call out its issues, the more that they sort of raise their shields. They don't want to hear it because it works for them. That's right. Like the premise of the fifth risk was all of a sudden we had a president who didn't actually know anything about what he was running and he fired his transition team. So there was no like handover of the government where people leaving were explaining what the hell was going on inside these places of the people who were coming in. Right. Just as an aside, you know, when we heard it was reported somewhere that the Trump folks coming in did not realize that they had to staff the entire West Wing themselves and the entire executive office building themselves. They were shocked. They thought those people just worked there all the time. Yeah. They said, like, why is everybody leaving? So for me, that was an excuse to wander around the risk management enterprise inside the federal government. And in the course of doing that, it wasn't bad people. It was bad systems. The stat that sticks in my mind, I'm going to update it now because it's gotten worse, is that there are now in information technology and government, there are six times more government employees over the age of 60 than under the age of 30. That's a big problem. Then you ask, like, why doesn't government work? And then people get angry at government for not working. But this isn't the responsibility of those people who are actually trying to do the jobs. The society has failed to understand what this enterprise is for and has allowed lots of bad things to happen inside of it. 
kind of basic management problems. One of the big trends in American government over 40 or 50 years is to turn what were career civil service jobs into presidentially appointed jobs. And when you make the head of the CDC, say, for example, a presidential appointee as opposed to a career civil servant, the average presidential appointee who's like running something like the CDC is there for 18 months. What is the likelihood that, one, they're going to have any kind of authority with the workforce, two, they're going to even know what's going on inside the organization, and three, if they're presidentially appointed, that they're the right person for the job because they're being picked for political reasons? Well, then, in charity, with your experience, let's say at the state of California, not naming any names, but that also leads to, amongst the civil servants, it can lead to a, it doesn't matter anyway, they're not going to listen. Why stick my head up above the trench line? just to get it cut off. These people aren't going to be here very long. Or it's the opposite, which is sort of this intransigence, which is you're going to be here for 18 months. I've been here for 18 years and I'm going to be here for 12 more. I agree with Michael that the humans inside the organization are drawn there because they're mission driven. So they're amazing public servants. The challenge is the bravest ones tend to get their heads chopped off. And I truly thought everyone was like me. I thought every local health officer was brave and took risks. And what I realized during COVID is the system that we have right now literally selects for people who are risk averse. And if you're brave and lean forward, you can get fired. But if you sit quietly, do nothing and write a white paper, there's no risk in that. And so that is what the system rewards. And so we have the exact system in the United States that we have created. And there's no credit given for the million people whose lives have been saved. Nobody even thinks in those terms. They think, I was massively inconvenienced by these things they made us do, and I'm irritated by it. Do you think the sort of overly sanitized nature of many Americans' lives contributed to so much of this? We see it probably more in political terms now than we do, but it's a psychological issue too, which is like suddenly you had to wear a mask on your face, and it's the worst thing. Do you think it's because we're just so comfortable that when the analog world intruded on, on the United States, like people just flipped out? I do think it's been a long time since we've all been in something together, in something hard and bad together. We've lost that muscle. And the idea of sacrificing for your country, it's just like an alien idea to a young person. Now, you, wouldn't be, you aren't asked to do it. And there was a really moving little piece of writing that was done by like a man in Kansas who lost his father to COVID. And he was just musing on how like his father had stormed the beaches in Normandy, you know, for democracy. And, and he couldn't believe that people in our country couldn't even bother to wear a mask to save their fellow citizens. The, the lack of kind of consideration for each other. It's the heart of this book, right? Well, let me just say this. I mean, as someone who's been fortunate enough to go to Omaha Beach, to continue your example, Michael, if you stand on that beach next to the seawall and you look at the quarter mile of sand those guys had to cross under complete bad weather, yeah, that was the easy part, but machine gun nests and artillery that had all been zeroed in at every angle possible, and the ramp went down and they did it anyway. Yeah, and there were all those white crosses on the cliff. And after the fifth risk, and I was book touring, a reporter asked me, like, what's going to fix this problem? At what point do Americans wake up to the need to get their house in order? And I said, probably a pandemic would do it. And I was wrong. 
I think I was wrong is that actually people didn't experience this as something we were all in together. It's a lack of basic kind of consideration for other people. That's a luxury that is a result of a long period of time without the sense that we've got to cohere or else I don't survive. If you replay the pandemic, replay it with the million deaths, but it's kids. Completely different response, right? Replay it and it skews towards killing rich people. Completely different response. We would have been put on wartime footing, which is what we should have done. But enough of the people who had enough of the influence didn't want to be inconvenienced and didn't extend that basic courtesy to the person who was vulnerable that I'm going to do something to make it a little less likely that you die from this. Well, and Charity, I mean, this is also with your experience, leadership matters too, right? It does. So that's the point I would make that when Todd Park asked me to sit down and write a plan for California, and I said, I can't and wrote one for the country. I'm not saying it's the right plan or it would have worked, but the reason I wrote it the way I did is I knew you would have to bring the carnage right up in front of people's faces and has to have total transparency so that every neighborhood, street by street, house by house, they know who's dying, they know who's getting sick, so that they take personal ownership for their role in it. And instead of it being a government mandate, that we organize this at the neighborhood level where everyone can see the carnage and take control of their own future. And the reason I called it the Churchill Plan is I knew that it would take that wartime buy-in and leadership. And I'm not saying it would have worked, but that's why I took that approach. Charity has made this point. Actually, all my characters have made this point. And it's a terrifying point that if you want to bring the society down, generate a pathogen because they're not going to get their act together to protect themselves. We really do look weak in this way. I mean, isn't that fascinating, though? You know, to bring it to right now, and then I want to ask about where we go from here, Charity, is that a war 6,000 miles from home with an autocrat, a murderous autocrat on one side and a brave embodiment of democracy on the other has energized the country, but we can't do it at home. It is a dichotomy. The world has changed. The threats we face today are different. And I do very much think about the types of pathogens, both natural and manufactured, that those that would seek to harm the U.S. have today. The biological threat is very real. This is not somewhere off in the distance. And so because the kind of threats have changed, the kind of response has to change. And we as a country are no better equipped today than we were at the beginning. No. And, you know, that was something in President Biden's recent State of the Union speech. He mentioned COVID. He said a couple of things. One, we're, gonna, we're living with it. But two, there might be variants. And when the variants happen, we're going to have to deal with them. And so, Charity, we had Delta. Then we had Omicron. Oh, it's not as bad, but it spreads very fast. And now Omicron has receded, as everyone said it has. And that's great news. But that doesn't mean the next nasty bug isn't out there lurking. That's right. And I agree with President Biden, but I would change that statement to there will be more variants that have meaningful vaccine escape. Whether they evolve from Omicron, highly likely we have millions of people infected, which each person infected is another opportunity for the virus to evolve. Now is not the time to let up our guard. I'm quite dismayed by the shift I see, whether it's masking or other measures, you know, the drop in those getting vaccinated started to taper off. I'm dismayed by that because Mother Nature has way more up her sleeve. We are going to see additional variants that are going to disrupt businesses, lives, and we can't assume that we've seen the worst of it yet. So it makes me very nervous seeing the societal changes 
you know, wanting to go back to the way things were. I do too. Everyone does. Everyone has plague fatigue. Everyone has plague amnesia. Now is not the time to let our guard down or the places where we do let our guard down to be very ready as a society to ramp back up those layers as soon as a new variant emerges. And I don't know that the country is ready to do that because again, they're not seeing that Churchill-esque leadership from the top of declaring this is a war. We're all in it together. We all have to be ready for the next time that we need to ramp up. Well, and, you know, Michael, you talked about the fifth risk. I, I worked at various federal agencies 20 years ago. One of them, the Department of Homeland Security at FEMA, after it got rolled in, this is pre-Katrina, 5,000 people out of a 319,000 person agency. All of this money being pushed into terrorism and terrorist training and all of this other stuff. And little FEMA going, you know, like natural disasters cost a lot more money and kill a lot more people than terrorism ever does. And they'd be like, who are you weirdos and why are you here? Yes, true. And we're always responding to the last crisis rather than the next one. You know, it was interesting. I did a kind of tour of a bunch of health offices in California and you would walk into the place and it would be 19th century kind of stuff. But then they'd sometimes be like a really new little lab on the side. It was the anthrax lab. It was the money that was set aside because of the fear of anthrax. And it kind of points to the bigger problem of how the money gets distributed. I think if I were God, I would certainly not let the CDC have the money and decide what to do with the money. But right now, we're moments away from billions of dollars being showered onto the CDC after the place has been discredited. Well, and that's one thing, Michael, too, is that the CDC, I think, before all this was seen as, you know, oh, the CDC said it. Now there are individual Americans who be like, why would I listen to them? So you say, are we better or are we worse off than before all this started? We're definitely worse off because the one mechanism we had to kind of communicate to the people what to do, and it was basically trusted, discredited itself. I mean, I don't know where we are if there's another thing. It's going to take fear. And for whatever reason, COVID wasn't enough. Well, but it's a more fundamental problem when you have half the country that won't get vaccinated, but a significant percentage of that half of the country who still believe the damn things like a Chinese hoax, right? Like they just don't buy it or they're getting a horse dewormer or whatever else they're taking for it. How do you convince people to be scared of something they don't believe in? Yeah. They get scared once they hit the ICU. Well, and I have to interject here because this is starting to sound very hopeless. So here's where there's hope. Now is the time to build a new system that actually works. And as we watch Congress discuss this, my hope is that they will take a brutally honest look at the system that we have, call a failure a failure, and be willing to do the hard thing to build something that actually works. And my fear is that they will instead want to build up the current system we have, put more duct tape on it, give it more funding. Additional funding for a broken system is not the solution. Right. Well, listen, guys, there is so much more to discuss, but we are running out of time. Before we go, though, Charity, tell us a little bit more about Public Health Company and where folks can find more information on it. Sure. They can find more information at phc.health. And to put it in context, I'm so passionate about this, about what is the system's solution and the need for an intelligence platform. If we have shared reality, we meaning society and organizations, to be able to see the threat in real time together and understand what the risk is and understand tactically what needs to be done. And I don't just mean for governments, but I mean CEOs, large enterprise. That's where we have a shared reality and can actually act, you know, to protect organizations. So 
That's what we're building at the public health company. We are a technology company building an intelligence platform that can actually identify those threats and enable organizations to respond quickly. I'm passionate about putting it in technology because I recognize the current system does not have the speed at which to outpace the pathogen. And yet the technology exists today to build that kind of intelligence. And so we are hard at work building it. Well, that's great news. And Charity, I want to say thank you for joining us again today and for all the other insight you've given us. Michael, what are you working on? A couple of things. A competing podcast where I'm going to be trying to steal your listeners. It's the third season of a podcast I created called Against the Rules. And it's totally fun to do. First season was about referees. Second season was about coaches. And the season I'm in the middle of now and we'll finish in a couple of months is about experts. And between books, I graze and you know try to figure out whether I should bother writing another one. But another one I think has just walked into my life. And I think when I'm done with the podcast, I'm gonna go write another book. Well, listen, keep that up. It's served you and the rest of us very well. So everybody tune into Against the Rules, wherever you can find your favorite podcast. And everybody, you can find me online at Reed Galen on Twitter. Michael, Charity, I want to thank you so much for the conversation today. I hope you'll both come back and see me soon. Until then, everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.